John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, this wedding at Cana. It seems that at this wedding, if you read between the lines, I don't know if uh, you could sense this a little bit, it's very subtle, that Mary seems to have some prominence in this wedding. Uh, In in verses 1 and 2 it says that uh, she was there, she was invited to this wedding. And it seems from verses 3 and 5 that she has some sort of, not just prominence, but she has like a role. She seems to be involved with the hosting. So it seems that she's invited, and she gets a plus 12, or or whatever, and she brings Jesus and his disciples to the wedding. Maybe it's a family wedding, I don't know. And she speaks to the servants in such a way as to suggest that she has some sort of responsibility over how things are going. But they've run out of wine. Shock horror. They're out of wine. I don't know if you've ever been at a wedding and they run out of drink or something. I was at one once. And do you know what happened? We all got over it. We went down co-op. We went down Sainsbury's. We bought all the schlur and appetizer and everything they had. And we filled this little tiny trolley. And, off we, and we all got over it and we quite enjoyed ourselves. But that's not how things go here and then. You see, in this time and place, you would not get over such shame, shock, and horror, and infamy if you run out of wine at your wedding. It would loom like a big cloud over the family for the rest of their lives. But when this, uh, when this crisis hits, Mary turns straight away to Jesus for help. It says she goes to Jesus in verse 3 and tells him, they have no wine, they've run out of wine. Jesus' reply to her is very odd, don't you think? She says, they have no wine, and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What? What does that mean? How is that helpful? We'll get to that. But uh, Mary's response to what Jesus says shows her faith. She trusted the whole fiasco into Jesus' hands. She goes to the servants and she says, listen, I trust him and I want you to trust him as well. Whatever he says, just do that and everything will be fine. I love that, don't you? She doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know what Jesus thinks or what he's going to do. She doesn't know how he's going to solve it. She doesn't know how is this possibly going to get fixed. There's not a co-op down the road. She says, just do what he says. She trusts him. That's lovely. And we can do that with Jesus with our whole lives, you know. I don't know what's going to happen. It looks impossible. I can't help but see disaster and crisis in my future. What's going on? What a mess. And we can trust the Lord Jesus with it, even when we don't know all the details. Then Jesus does this miracle. He has these pots that were there, big pots full of water that were there for washing, for purification. The Jews would wash there to be ceremonially clean, like we spoke about earlier. And he has them filled up with water, and then when he plunges a cup in there and pulls it out, out comes wine. And not just any old wine, the best stuff, the good stuff. And the day is saved. The the wedding goes off brilliantly, no doubt. And it says in verse 11, the disciples saw this happen, and they believed in Jesus Have you ever heard a sermon on these verses before? Anyone? Maybe at a wedding? 
You heard a sermon on the wine and the water and the wedding at Cana. There are lots of ways you could tackle this passage. Loads of good things you could teach from it. It often goes something like this. Jesus is no killjoy. Jesus loves parties as well. He's literally just been tempted by Satan after his baptism. And the next thing, party. He's got a ministry in which he's going to reveal God to sinners and to call them to faith and repentance and to grant them eternal life. But first, a party. So he's no killjoy. He's got a place in his life for parties and he sees uh, how these have their place in human life. What else? Far from opposed to partying, he facilitates it. He even makes uh, wine out of water so that it can go off well. He has power over creation is another one. He is obviously God because he has power to turn water into wine. He protects the reputations and the honor of those who are ashamed, those who mess up. He rescues them. He redeems hopeless situations, is another one. And all these are brilliant. I love those sermons. They teach us such wonderful, wonderful things that focus us on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what they should do. And it's right and good to varying degrees to teach these things from the passage. But the question goes unanswered. Ready? This is the question for us. What does the miracle mean? What does it mean? What's that all about? Water to wine. What does it mean? It's notoriously difficult to interpret this miracle. To say, what does Jesus intend to communicate by doing this very thing for us in front of our eyes. You see, one of the reasons it's so difficult is because it's one of these um, anomalies in John's Gospel. I don't know if you're familiar with John's Gospel. It's wonderful. If you're not, you should just read it. And when you're done, read it again. It's brilliant. But all the way through John's Gospel, you get things like this happening. Bam! A miracle. And then a long speech. And the speech and the miracle explain one another. Sometimes it's the other way around. A long speech and then bam! A miracle. So for example, you get the feeding of the 5,000 and then you get, I am the bread of life. Or you get, I am the light of the world. And then he heals a man who was born blind. And so these miracles and the speeches go together. But in John 2, there's just a miracle. There's no speech. How are we to interpret it? Thankfully, we are told the purpose of the miracle in verse 11. It says the disciples see the sign, the miracle, and what happens? They believe in him. So that's the purpose of the miracle, that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's actually the, um, the objective uh, of not just the miracle, but John the Apostle, when he wrote his gospel, he says at the end of the gospel, right at the end, he says, now listen, I've written all these things down so that you might know that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, and that you can have life by believing in his name. So the whole book, including this miracle, is all about us coming to believe in Jesus. But what does the miracle mean? That's the question. How does it reveal Jesus? How does it show his glory? Why this miracle? Why does the Son of the living God come down to earth to turn water into wine at a party? 
He's starting his ministry. Why doesn't he heal the sick? Why doesn't he feed the poor? Why doesn't he raise the dead? Why start by making booze? Booze. For people to drink. Why? What does it mean? What I have for you is three clues. And then, we'll t- and then by the end of that, the penny will have dropped, hopefully. And I'll tell you the meaning of the miracle. Ready? Clue one. On the third day. Verse one. Yes, the third day. What's your name? Thank you for helping me, Samuel. On the third day, Samuel. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Do you think it's significant that it was on the third day? John tells us it was on the third day. He doesn't have to put that in there. You know, when we write our histories, or if you're into biographies and you're reading biographies, aren't they just full of dates that we never remember? Loads of dates. On this date he was born, on this date he died, on this date he got married, on this date blah, 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 blah. And they're so full of dates, it's not that they're meaningless, but we get that that's all they're for. Just a timestamp to tell us when things happened. But not so in the Gospels. The Gospel writers give us timestamps more sparingly. So when they do, it's significant. Especially John. John loves symbolism. He can't get enough of it. He's always telling us days, nights, seasons, times of the year, festivals. For example, Jesus died at what time of year, someone? Passover, that's right. The gospel writers go out their way to tell us he dies at Passover. That's significant. When he says, I am the light of the world, it is during the Feast of Tabernacles, all about light. You can finish this one for me. Judas went out and it was night. So it's important when we're given these timestamps and told uh, when things happened. It matters. And no less significant is on the third day. The third day, all the way through the Bible, means new life, new beginnings, even life from the dead. New life, new beginnings, even life from the dead. When you go home, you can pick up your concordance or you can go on your phone and you can look up on the third day how many times it comes up in the Bible. Sometimes it says on the third day. Sometimes it's the day after, the day after, and you get a sequence. You can work it out on the third day. Things amazing happen on the third day. And it's all about new life and new beginnings. For example, in Genesis 22, Abraham, Isaac, and the sacrifice. Do you remember that one? Whoa. What a, what a thrilling story that is. Do you remember that one when Abraham takes Isaac up and he's about to kill him? And, yeah, remember? The father takes the son up Jerusalem's mountain for a sacrifice. And he's utterly convinced, the Bible says in Hebrews, that his son will be raised from the dead. Does that sound familiar? The day they go up that mountain is the third day. And so all the way through the Bible, the third day means new life, new beginnings, life from the dead. But if I said to you on the third day, or if John's readers reading on the third day, what do they think of? They don't think of Abraham and Isaac. What do they think of? They think of Jesus. Isn't it, Boaz? 
That's right, think of Jesus. Because Jesus was raised on the third day after he was crucified. So that's your first clue, the third day. Before the miracle even happens, we are brought by the text to expect new life. This miracle means something about new beginnings. Even the, ra- the, the sort of rising, of the de- rising from the dead of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. All right, so that's clue one. Pop that in your head. Clue two. Jesus' hour. Mary goes to him, they have no wine. And he says to her in verse four, my hour has not yet come. What do you think Jesus is referring to when he says, my hour? Mm. Boaz. That's right. When he dies on the cross. All the way through the Gospels, Jesus is referring to my hour, my hour, my hour. And the Gospel writers say his hour, his hour, his hour, meaning his death. One of, the, one of the really good ones is in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, there's another timestamp. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His hour means his death. But this makes it all the more confusing, I think. Why is it that when Mary asks him about wine, he talks to her about his death? What's that all about? What is it in Jesus' mind that connects more wine with his death? How are those two things connected at all in his mind? I can't think of a a very clear way of putting this, and that's my fault. But remember when Jesus was in the uh, institute in the Lord's Supper? He had the Last Supper with his disciples. And he said... I've really been looking forward to having this with you because I'm not going to drink wine again until I see you in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember that? Matthew 26. I won't drink wine again until I see you in the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus knows, you see, that his hour, his death, means wine of celebration for everyone who will believe in him. He knows that his death upon the cross means a party that is described as a wedding feast in the kingdom of heaven. So there he is at this wedding and he's thinking about that wedding when he and his church, his people will be married and they will drink wine together in this wonderful celebration. He is here in this hour and he's thinking about that hour which is going to win it. He's here dealing with this wine, and he's thinking about that wine. This is why he says to Mary, what's this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Why do you come to me about more wine now? My hour, when I bring in more wine forever, has not yet come. So that's your second clue. Whatever this miracle means, it means... Life from the dead, new beginnings, that sort of thing. But it also means about, uh, it also is going to lift the veil on the significance of Jesus' death. So it's got something to do with his resurrection, something to do with his death. And the third clue, and I hope this one is where the penny will drop, these great big pots of water. The washing. The big pots that are used for washing. 
I liked how it was put in the ESV. There were six stones of water in verse 6. Six stones of water, uh, six stone water jars rather, there for the Jewish rites of purification. Where is your sink in your house? I think you've got a sink, haven't you? Two. Samuel's got two. They're in the bathroom probably, or the kitchen. Do any of you walk into your house, open the front door, and there's your sink? Don't think so. There's not many people who have their sink right in front of the front door. But that's probably where it was in this wedding. Guests arriving would first have to wash before they could lie down and eat and drink. And it's not just a hygiene thing, it's a spiritual thing. Like we were telling the kids earlier, Moses taught that we're constantly becoming unclean by living here and now. If you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, if you used the wrong words or touched the wrong things, if you were a lady at a particular time of the month, if you ate the wrong thing, if you caught the disease, or even if you dreamt the wrong dreams, you can become unclean and you need a wash. Moses taught us that sin and guilt is inevitable in this world. From within and without, things make us dirty and ruin our lives. Have you ever felt dirty because of your sin? Because of things that you've said and done? Mistakes that we make, words that we can't take back, deeds that we can't undo, they make us dirty. Some people who get this really well are those who obsessively wash their hands. I don't know if you know anyone who does that. People who just can't seem to stop washing their hands. They get it. The becoming dirty in this world is inevitable. And so the Jews in Jesus' day would constantly wash as a reminder of their sin to remind them that they must be washed by God if they're to be clean all the way through. They washed regularly in an anticipation of Jesus coming who would wash them permanently and finally. Listen to how David put it all those years before. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you, speaking to the Lord, you, Lord, delight in truth, and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Wash me, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. That's what these jars mean. Washing away. Wash, 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 wash. So when Jesus comes along, and he fills up these water jars, what do you think is going to happen? you would be forgiven for thinking that when Jesus fills up these water jars, ah, I see, he's going to give everyone a good scrub-a-dub. Or maybe, like in chapter 1, not, not too many verses before, he's going he's to baptize everybody as a sign of their repentance and the remission of their sins. Wouldn't that be really fitting? Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he fill up Water jars that were there to wash away uncleanness. Why doesn't he wash these people as a sign of the forgiveness of sins? He doesn't do that. Remember, 
He is thinking while he's having these water jars filled up. He's thinking about his hour, his death. When he is going to take away our sins and our uncleanness by his own death and resurrection. You see, the reason why Jesus doesn't wash these people with this water is because Jesus did not come to fill washing jars. He came to fulfill washing jars. He came to complete ceremonial washing, to do it once for all, over, finished, done, actually completed. You never have to do it again if Jesus washes your heart. He's come to complete and bring to an end and finish the constant washing of the dirtiness of our own souls. Just as this wedding makes him think of that wedding, just as this hour makes him think of that hour, these washing jars are making him think of that final washing that he will give us through his own death. When Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us, he finished ceremonial washing forever because when we believe in him, we are made clean for good. His hour, his third day, it means the end of washings and sin and guilt. I don't know if you're sick and tired of the shame, if you're sick and tired of the guilt, if you're laboring under the burden of sin, if you are sick and tired of constant failure time and time again against the temptations of sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil, are you tired of the constant washing, as it were, or always trying to make up with God by yourself? The Lord Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, his hour and his third day, takes away the dirt forever. Praise the Lord. Here's the meaning of the miracle then. This is faster, I think, I hope. Through his death and new life, Jesus replaces the old washings with new cleanness and rejoicing. The water of purification is gone. In comes the wine of celebration. Constant guilt, gone. Constant scrubbing, gone. Constant washing of my own sins away as best as I can, gone. In comes the third day when we rise again to new, clean life in him. Think about the guests. Imagine you were a guest coming to this party. In you walk. Great, it's a wedding. Oh, jars of purification to remind me of my sin. I've got to try again to clean myself. Another temporary fix. Another inevitable failure. Because you know that before this party is over, you will have sinned again in your head or in your heart or whatever, and you'll need cleansing again. You need to go back to those pots again and again and again. No wonder they needed to be refilled. But instead of that, instead of that, you walk in, and there's Jesus, the Son of the living God, and he presses into your hand a cup of wine, and he says, sit with me at my table. Eat and drink with me. <laughs> they came to the water and they found wine because of his hour and the third day. 
This miracle means that Jesus ends our constant guilt before our Father and replaces it with a happy welcome to his heavenly wedding party through his own death and resurrection. This miracle points us to him and his work, taking away our sins and our guilt onto himself at the cross, burying our dirt deep in the ground like a grave, and coming out again to new and clean living. Now I have a few sentences to finish, okay? Just a few sentences. Because John doesn't go to great lengths to explain to us what the miracle means. But what he does go out of his way to tell us is what it's for. What its purpose is. And that's what we've got to finish with, right? Just a couple of sentences. We've talked about what the miracle means, but what is it for? I don't know how much the disciples understood there and then about what they were seeing and witnessing. How much do you understand about Jesus and his work? Do you understand that he's God and man? Can you wrap your head around him being immortal and dead? Do you understand that? How he can be spotless and pure and undefiled and made a curse and sin for us? The point of this is not understanding. They didn't need to be able to wrap their head around all the ins and outs of all of this stuff. Could they even? What we find in verse 11 is absolutely wonderful. They see the sign and then they believe in him. That's what matters. That's the purpose of this miracle. That's what you are supposed to see and do. See the sign and believe in him. That's how it works. Through his death and resurrection on the third day, he ends washings, he ends sin, brings us into the wedding feast of heaven. We don't have to understand it all. we just got to believe in him. If you'd rather, right, you can prefer, if you, if you want, you can keep on scrubbing. You can keep on washing. You can keep on failing. And what you'll get is always water and never wine. Always dirty and never clean. What John 2 tells us to do by showing us this miracle is it compels us to trust Jesus because he can do it. He can clean your life now. And right now, He's willing to save you a glass of wine with him in the kingdom of heaven.